Welcome to What Makes Up Your Mind. Updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University's School of Medicine. This is your invitation to meet the faculty dedicated to understanding our most complex organ, committed to curing mental illness, and inspired to help create a healthier, thriving world. We're so glad you tuned in to What Makes Up Your Mind. Welcome, I'm Jane McMillan. I think it's fair to say there is nothing we wouldn't do for the children in our lives. Nothing we wouldn't do to protect them, to foster their growth and healthy development, to recognize the challenges they may be facing and support them as they navigate their way toward adulthood. And we all know how to nurture kids with food and love, but it might be trickier to recognize when the burden they're bearing is stress or the effects of trauma. Not only would we want to know how to relieve such pain for our kids, but even better, we'd all like to know how to give them the tools to manage stress and be resilient, thriving members of our families and of society. Well, today I'm joined by Dr. Victor Carrion, Director of the Early Life Stress and Pediatric Anxiety Program here at Stanford Psychiatry. Dr. Carrion is also the Vice Chair of the Department with more than two and a half decades dedicated to understanding the impact of stress and trauma on young developing brains. He's developed a treatment called Q-Centered Therapy, authored books on the subject, and is investigating the positive impacts of a yoga and mindfulness curriculum in schools. Dr. Victor Carrion, it's really good to have you with us, and thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. When and how did you come to recognize the prevalence of stress and trauma in childhood? That's a time that many of us tend to presume is carefree for kids. When I was a child psychiatry fellow here doing a subspecialty in child and adolescent uh, psychiatry, part of that involves starting to see cases and clinical cases. And I noticed that a considerable amount of children were coming to me with little notes from the teacher uh, saying, this kid has ADHD, please place on Ritalin. And I, and I was thinking, wow, the diagnosis has been made. The treatment plan is already in place. Why am I even training? <laughs> so a lot of these kids ended up not having ADHD. Some of them did, but what a lot of them had was the effects of adversity and experiencing trauma. And the symptoms that get developed sometimes can be misinterpreted and can be confused. So for example, you can have the hypervigilance that sometimes occurs after a kid goes through a threatening situation, uh, confused with the hyperactivity of ADHD. And then the dissociation that sometimes we experience after trauma, kind of a feeling of not reality, like you're really not who you are or the situation is not the situation that it appears to be. Uh, that weird, strange sense of in reality we call dissociation and Sometimes kids experience this, and sometimes they experienced it in very normal setting as part of normal development, mm -hmm. right? But when it occurs too much, it starts being a problem. So that got sometimes confused with the inattention okay. of ADHD. It became very clear to me then that we needed to find better descriptions of post-traumatic stress disorder in children or 
post-traumatic reactions in general uh, because people really were not understanding that children could really manifest behavioral, academic, social, cognitive symptoms, emotional symptoms after trauma occurs. How do we define trauma like this? Is it a one-time event? Is it a consistent uh, set of circumstances that children live under, whether it's poverty or neglect, or maybe just the everyday stressors of school or social issues, or, or is it both? So two things about this. According to the DSM-5, our Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, trauma is an experience in which you fear that the worst thing could have happened. And, and it is specific in defining this as death, that you were close to death or, or have your physical integrity some, somehow uh, in disarray, and maybe not only to you, but to people close to you. And that is a, a good objective, semi-objective definition of trauma. But what happens when you are very young and you're younger than eight or seven you really tend to think about death differently than we think about it. For very young children, death may be reversible and may also not be universal. Mm -hmm. It's something that happens to other people and they may even come back. But what is worse for very young children is to be separated from their caretakers. So there's still other editions of DSM that we will have to go to to deal with that. In terms of how we in the literature and clinically and scientifically talk about trauma, one of the concerns that I have is that we have a lot of terms out there, and I'm concerned that sometimes the message might get diluted. So, for example, we have the term toxic stress, we have the term traumatic stress, a clinical uh, label, PTSD. Uh, many people don't consider PTSD a disorder, consider it more of an injury. That would be PTSI. The, the way that I like to think about it, and I would invite your audience to think about it, is allostatic load. Allostatic load refers not to one incident, but to the accumulation of stressors that we all have throughout life. And a, a nice way to think about this, as a friend of mine reminded me, is like a backpack. It's like everything you can carry. And we actually can carry a, a load and, and, and work with a load. But if you are five, six, seven, and your backpack gets really heavy, you fall backwards. Mm -hmm. And then that's what we call allostatic load, the accumulation of stressors throughout life that is going to have an impact on your health. And health in a very general term. I'm talking about both physical and mental. So we are talking about a one-time event that could be perceived by a child as close to death or death as they perceive it, or it can be this accumulation, this, this stretch of adversity. Correct. That and also out. what happens is that different individuals have different vulnerability to stressors. So if you can think of a threshold model and think how genetically some individuals may be very close to that threshold, and it might take one event to really have them mm -hmm. uh, develop symptoms that cause difficulties with function, and we can talk what that means, does, too. Is that when we get to the clinical diagnosis of PTSD, when it Correct. affects function? Correct. Exactly. Okay. And, and the reality is that, you know, you can be as anxious as you want to be. You can be as obsessive as you want to be. But 
if your relationships with other people, if how you feel about yourself, if your work or school doesn't get interrupted, then it's not a problem. We really talk about uh, symptoms that cause dysfunction. So the dysfunction has to be in one of those three realms. Now, that individual was very close to the threshold, but you can also think of individuals that are very far from the threshold, and they may not be highly vulnerable to develop PTSD, but as you get accumulation and accumulation of stressors, then you get closer mm -hmm. and closer to that threshold. How do we recognize that? Because it's very commonly known that there are not enough clinicians, there are not enough professional caretakers to address this issue. So it's falling more to schools, families need to be more aware. What are some of the physical or behavioral or verbal clues that might tell us that a child is under stress, is suffering adversity, and maybe inching closer to that threshold. Yes, we really don't have enough therapists for the amount of children that need help. We have 75% of kids in the United States that need mental health to not receive it, and that's because we have very limited uh, resources. What we're trying to do in our department to address that is to work together with primary care so that pediatricians, family docs, and others can actually also do some of the screening or even some of the prevention and interventions that are necessary. We're also trying to work with technology so that we can get and reach out individuals that are more difficult uh, to reach. And then you also work with paraprofessionals, and these are the groups that you're mentioning, coaches, teachers, other individuals, uh, attorneys, right, that can uh, really influence the life of a child. In terms of how we recognize it, we really have to remember that when we talk about children, we're talking about a very heterogeneous group. We really, in general, have three groups. We have the preschoolers, we have the school age, and we have the adolescents. To that, we can also add the transitional age youth mm -hmm. now to 26, right? And sometimes the way that they manifest their, uh, that they're having difficulties after the experience of trauma is very different. So for example, a school-age kid may develop somatic symptoms like belly aches or headaches or aneurysis, the wetting of the bed at night, may not want to go to school, may become more oppositional or more clingy. Whereas an adolescent, for example, may be more withdrawn, more isolated, not wanting to talk about things. So it's important to look at it developmentally. But in general, you want to know if the relationships with their peers and adults are okay, if if they're doing okay in school or there has been a big drastic change on their performance and how they feel, how they feel about themselves and what their mood is at the time. That's tough for those of us who are lay people who have children in our lives to try to figure out what's growing pains, what might be 
hormonal changes. Well, and I'll tell you what's tougher. Some of children don't develop any symptoms yeah. until months and years later, and we call this a delayed response. So then we really have to know the child. We really need to know what their life experience has been. And if they have gone through experiences that we would consider traumatic, or more importantly, that they would consider traumatic, then we really need to pay attention on the impact that that may have had. It's not only impact in terms of their behavior, but it's impact in terms of their body and their physiology. There, in fact, might be physiological, neuroscientific changes that occur before you see them express behaviorally. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was part of the question I wanted to get to with misdiagnosis, saying, oh, this is a behavioral issue with ADHD or put them on Ritalin. What are some of the bodily clues that there may be something completely different going on? Well, what we wanted to do in our program, Early Life Stress, here at Stanford was could we identify some biological uh, changes that are different from other conditions or other things that happen and not definitely tied to PTSD per se, but tied to the experience of having post-traumatic symptoms. So we started looking at cortisol. Cortisol is a hormone that gets secreted when we have stress. And it's very good that we have it because if we're going to cross the street and a truck is coming, you want cortisol to go up yes. along with other hormones and you want to jump out of there and it helps you do that. Uh, cortisol helps us daily. It's very high at the beginning of the day so that we can wake up. It's very low at the end of the night. It does the circadian rhythm of cortisol so that we can go back to bed. But at the time that we started working here uh, on this program about 23 years ago, some animal research by Robert Sapolsky and Bruce McEwen at the Rockefeller Center and, and Sapolsky here at Stanford uh, were, were showing that corticosterone, which is the cortisol analog of uh, cortisol in rodents, um, was neurotoxic to sensitive cells of the brain, areas like in the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex, hippocampus being part of the limbic system. So we wanted to see what the level of cortisol of these kids was because we know that in terms of their emotional experience, they feel like those trucks are coming at them every day and very heavy. So what's the impact of that? And what we found was that that circadian rhythmicity was there. It was high at the beginning of the day. It was low at the end of the day but not as low as in the healthy control kids. The pre-bedtime cortisol levels were significantly higher in children that experienced trauma, and we've replicated that with subsequent samples. And then the, the question was, well, what impact does this have? And we started doing neuroimaging and identifying that these high levels of cortisol actually correlated with hippocampal changes, and not only that, with prefrontal cortex changes as well. And as many know, the prefrontal cortex really is responsible for executive function, mm -hmm. our ability to control impulsivity, to control our own emotion, have better emotion regulation, our ability to organize and think clearly. And, and this seems like this was being impaired by the, that high level of cortisol. So physically, we would see maybe obesity in children or lack of focus, problems sleeping, what other physical Correct. symptoms? 
you know, together with the Center for Youth Wellness, we actually looked at kids that were experiencing adverse childhood experiences and noticed that those that had four or more with an average age of 12 years old, uh, four or more adverse childhood experiences had double the risk of obesity. But it's important to say how multigenetic this is, right? There might be some individuals that have obesity that have no history of trauma. There might be individuals that have history of trauma that are very thin. I mean, it's it's all over the place. But certainly there seems to be uh, something that puts at risk some of the kids in in terms of obesity. Some biological marker that somebody might notice a change. Correct. Let's talk about some of the circumstances that we see going on around the world, and in fact, here in our own country of violence, uh, gun violence, um, family separation at the border, war. Those are so obviously traumatic experiences. What other, in our own backyard, what kinds of circumstances are you seeing that create this kind of sustaining adversity that might result in trauma or PTSD? Yeah, so we, we have a number of significant traumatic events. We, for example, have natural catastrophes, right, like fires, mm-hmm. hurricanes, earthquakes. And then we have man-made disasters like terrorism, shootings, all of this. We also have interpersonal violence, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and witnessing violence. And and they are not they don't they don't all exist isolated, right? In different compartments. When we go to sites where they have experienced natural catastrophes, right, after the fires in Santa Rosa or after the earthquake in Haiti, what we find is people that have that allostatic load that they want to talk about. They want to talk about all the other experiences that they have had in their life. So it's really the accumulation of all of those stressors. And sometimes you have individuals for example, after Katrina, and and this happened in Puerto Rico as well, after the hurricane separation of the families. So there's a primary trauma that everybody thinks of, but then there's all this other secondary trauma that also uh, relates to to what they're doing. And and what we've noticed when we meet these people and what we've noticed throughout the years doing our scientific research is that there was very limited uh, availability of treatment modalities for these children. So two things I want to say about that. One, PTSD in children is very treatable. So recognizing it is important. The problem is that as a society, sometimes we experience post-traumatic symptoms ourselves, and avoidance is one of the key symptoms of PTSD. And I'm not talking about the avoidance of, I'll do this in the weekend because I'm too busy. I'm talking about avoidance of really not seeing or not wanting to process what has happened, denying that a trauma has happened to a child. Sometimes it's so horrible to see the stories that our own defense mechanisms get in the way of actually providing them with the help that they need. So we have a saying in our lab that is PTSD feeds on avoidance. And and if that's the case, then what we want to do is approach. So even though we started from a very scientific end looking, and we continue to, uh, looking at cortisol and the brain function and all of that, all that work really led us to develop treatment 
treatment interventions for children, uh, mostly in the form of what we call Q-Center therapy for treatment, and also on the form of prevention through yoga and mindfulness at schools uh, as part of a curriculum and other interventions as well. Well, we should point out too that the Early Life Stress and Pediatric Anxiety Program that you run has been on the ground in Puerto Rico and has been in the California fire zones. And so you are working with groups that are implementing these uh, practices. So you're getting real life up to the minute results of, of how these things work. If, if, we, if we take um, a look at prevention first, mindfulness and yoga in the classroom. The school seems to be, education seems to be a platform now where, uh, again, back to the lack of clinicians and lack of professionals to, to meet the Correct. need, yeah. that, that this is a place that, that these skills can be taken to the kids. What would a really great functioning system look mm -hmm. like? Uh, maybe there are other countries or other states that are doing these types of things helping kids prepare for life's stressors. What would that look like in the schools or in the home or churches, wherever? Yes, that, that's really where we have to go. And, and you're really touching at a very important point. There's really nothing in the literature that says that it is of benefit for a child to have the structure of a 45 to an hour therapy once a week in a, in a clinic setting. Of course, that is necessary for those that need it, and I'm glad that we have it and that some individuals can get that. But the reality is that we need to go where the children are uh, rather than have them come to us. And children are at schools, and schools are great settings for learning. And what I like to envision is a setting where not only you're learning academics, but you're learning about your emotional life, your social, emotionally becoming competent. And, and many schools call this social, emotional learning. And, and I think it's one of the things that people struggle on how to implement, or do they implement well, or do they don't, or do they don't even have it, and and we need some accountability and some oversight on how socio-emotional learning is applied in schools. In many schools, it's not, and we need to be teaching kids how to, in the same way they develop their cognitive skills, how can they develop their empathy skills, their ability to name their emotions, their ability to communicate, their abilities to engage socially when indicated. Um, and, and, and this is all teachable. So you need the right people to teach it with the right training, and then you need the cu right curriculums to do it. Something that I like about the physicality of yoga is that no matter where you go later in your life, if you look at your toolbox, one thing that you will always have with you is your body, is yourself. And if you are in touch with who you are and how you feel and how you can make yourself feel better, that's an invaluable tool. And yoga and mindfulness are ways of addressing that competency. So I'm going to be the devil's advocate here, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase what one might hear from folks who might think school is a place to learn how to read, to write, to do math, to prepare yourself to get a job. And personal development should be something that's done in the home, in the church. There may be stigma, there may be cultural issues surrounding doing yoga or doing mindfulness, even though it is 
non-religious, but there still is a perception. So how would you, as a professional that knows that these are effective tools, I mean, we're talking about prevention now, not just treatment, but prevention, life skills. How would you address that thought? Because I think it's still fairly prevalent across the United States, at least. Mm -hmm. I would say there's no either or, and there's no need for compartmentalization. In fact, children learn a lot of cognitive skills through parents. They model parents in their way of thinking. Uh, they learn from the social groups or religious groups that they belong to. Uh, so there's, there's no need for places to be divided that way. They actually will be learning. We like it or not. They will be learning socio-emotional concepts along the way because they are interacting with adults and children in schools. We want to guide them to do it the right way because it's not only in those children's benefit, it's in the benefit of the whole society. These are the leaders of the future and we want to make sure that they're well equipped to take not only care of themselves but of each other. What's the cost if we don't do this? I mean, what, give us an idea of the breadth of the need and what happens in a society if, if we don't start addressing these types of needs for more interpersonal skills and uh, ways to carry oneself through the stressors of life? Teaching and learning these protective factors could really help decrease the prevalence of mental disorders and many of us think also physical disorders. That will really help the economy of the country, that will decrease the costs and increase the productivity that many of these kids uh, have in the, in the future. And it would be a, a higher burden to themselves and society if they don't learn mm -hmm. how to do yeah. it. Once we're talking about a child who has suffered this and who has been diagnosed or who, or, or who needs to be diagnosed, are schools still the place now when we're talking about screening for treatment rather than waiting for an, a, a pediatrician's appointment or someone else to catch it? Schools work and primary settings work. I mean, we need to do it whatever we can. Of course, with screening comes a responsibility. You have to have the resources that you're gonna offer that child and family. So we need to first assure that we have those resources. And we're very limited in what resources we have for children. Well, the good news that you, you brought up, I and mean, we've talked about the problem and we've talked about the need, but you said that PTSD in children is treatable and it's reversible. So we're talking, cure if the right resources are brought to bear. Is that we're, we're, we're talking cure and we're talking prevention. We're talking that it doesn't even develop if the kids have the right resources to process the events that occur. So the reason a lot of people consider this an injury rather than a disorder is because it's basically the fight and fright system going haywire mm -hmm. and we need to readjust it and many people think well what happens if you talk about trauma and they get re-traumatized because you're talking about it but you know dr david spiegel um actually talks about this very well he says it's just like when someone breaks an arm right and they go to the emergency room if you don't touch the arm it's not going to heal and it's going to hurt when you touch mm -hmm. the arm 
but then it's going to get better. And the same thing, the same thing with, with trauma and its treatment. And I would like to add here, a common misconception is to think that children are resilient by virtue of being children. And there's nothing in the literature that supports that. We have to help them become resilient. In fact, what the literature suggests and what our work suggests is that children are more vulnerable than adults. So as a society, we react uh, strongly to any physical violence or physical injury done to an innocent child, to to a helpless child. Should we start thinking of the trauma that can be perpetuated on to a vulnerable child as the, the same as a physical injury. Do you think that thinking about it that way would help us as a society be more proactive and more protective and more uh, oriented toward prevention? Yes, it is, it is physical. The brain and the mind are one. Mental health and physical health are one. They both uh, communicate and, and they're inter- intricately linked. So yeah, there's no, no separation between those. Finally, speaking to whomever might be listening that may have a child in their life and may wonder, I wonder if I need to ask some questions or do I need to do some digging to see how they're feeling? What would you suggest? Maybe the first questions they should ask their child. I I would say, first of all, don't be afraid of approaching the child and talking to the child directly. Uh, Even if it doesn't work, like I mentioned, adolescents may be more withdrawn, at least they will get the message that the doors of communication are open and that they can come to you if they have questions in the future about something they're struggling with or an experience that they just had at school or something that some trauma that the community may be going through. Uh, So it's important to have those channels of communication open, right? Remember, no avoidance, right? But it's also important to know when their function is being changed or being altered. If any of those points that I mentioned, a change on their mood or their performance or their relationship with family and friends gets changed, that that may be a situation in which they really should contact their primary care and, and begin that conversation. It probably would do us all good to have some lessons in how to talk to kids. In general, you want to get to their eye level, and you really want to uh, not suggest to the child how they should feel or how they should answer. So you want to have very open-ended questions. You may want to, if the child is young, um, have some play also as part of the conversation. Uh, They may not have the vocabulary to really express everything that they're feeling, and they may do it through play. So so there are ways. There are ways to, to talk to them. Dr. Victor Carrion, Director of the Early Life Stress and Pediatric Anxiety Program and Vice Chair of the Stanford Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, thank you much for sharing your expertise. Thank you. And thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. We hope you come back often. I'm Jane McMillan. You've been listening to What Makes Up Your Mind, updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the experts in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. For more information on this program and all of our transformational work, visit us at med.stanford.edu slash psychiatry.
Makes Up Your Mind is a production of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Stanford University's School of Medicine. A copyright 